in chapter 22 of the book of Luke, we have Jesus in the upper room. Uh, we have Jesus in the upper room institution and talking about communion with his disciples. So in this chapter, we find Jesus in the upper room talking with his disciples about communion. And I find that communion is one of the most misunderstood concepts by Christians and the importance is also misunderstood. In the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at clarification and grasp the real meaning of communion and why it's important for me and you to take communion on a regular basis. It starts in the section we're studying today where Jesus begins to prepare for the Passover. And then during that Passover that he shares with his disciples, he gives us communion and of course says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. I want to start by reading the text. And once we read the text and talk about what's there, I want to look at the Passover, the Passover lamb, and how those things speak to us about communion and give us some clarity. So let's start with verse 7. It says, for the day of unleavened bread, the, the, then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. So he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room there made ready. And they went and they found it just as he had said, and they prepared the Passover. Now there's something that you can't miss as we read that passage, and that is how many times Passover is said. It's funny that there are some people that say, well, Jesus wasn't eating the Passover meal. All they need to do is to read these few verses to understand they were eating the Passover. Now, here's the reason, and I want to deal with this discrepancy to start. And I think looking at alleged discrepancies in the Bibles, things that people point out as discrepancies, can be very helpful to us because sometimes we're reading through the Bible and we go, it says this here and it says this here. And how can these two things be reconciled? In the Synoptic Gospels, it tells us that Jesus kept the Passover with his disciples on the beginning of unleavened bread. That would be the 14th of Nisan. Don't think a car, think a month. It's a Jewish month. It's the first month of the year. Well, I don't know if it's the first month of the year for them, might be. But the, the 14th of Nisan, on that uh, evening, they would partake of the Passover. And that was the remembrance ceremony. So there's two things you find in the Old Testament. You find the account of the first Passover that they were to keep and then how they were to remember that Passover from time to time. Now, John tells us that Jesus was put on the cross when it, what he tells us is that the scribes and Pharisees would not enter into Pilate's home because they thought that it would defile them for they wanted to take the Passover later on that night. So you have in John's gospel, Jesus being arrested on the day that the scribes and Pharisees, or scribes, that the Sadducees are going to eat the Passover. 
And in the Synoptic Gospels, you've got Jesus eating the Passover the day before he's arrested. And so which one is it? And there's been a few suggestions that have been made, but I think the one that I adhere to is that Josephus tells us that there were 250,000 lambs that were killed in the Passover during this time in the middle of the first century. Every Passover. Now, Josephus is known for his exaggerations. So almost no scholar believes that there were 250,000 lambs killed. That would be an incredible number. How long would it take to kill, drain the blood, prepare the animal, give it back to the family, pour, you know, do with what they had to do with the blood, and to put it there? Even if they did it in shifts, which it seems like when you look back, that's what they did. They brought in how many ever they brought in? 30, 40, 50 people into the area of the court. The people killed the animals. The priest oversaw the killing of the animals. So when you brought your Passover lamb, remember in the first Passover, you were to kill your animal, drain its blood, put the, door on your, put the blood around your door, and now the death angel would pass over. So Josephus uh, tells us that they killed a lot of lambs, and then there is a scholar, uh, W.L. Lane. He wrote a book in 1974 called The Gospel of Mark. And on pages 497 through 498, you can find this online, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, and it's um, B. Ed, um, Erdman's publishing company that published it. And he writes that the Sadducees and Pharisees were at odds about which day they were supposed to keep the Passover. This is because for the Jewish people, the Passover start or the day starts from sundown until from, yeah, from sundown until sundown is the way that they count their days. And because of this, the Pharisees believed that it was on the 13th and 14th of Nisan and the Sadducees, who were the priestly uh, group, believed that it was the 14th and 15th of Nisan. And this allowed them to have two different days that they sacrificed their animals. So that Jesus, being from Galilee, would have had his Passover when the Pharisees did, which was the earlier one, which would have been that Thursday night, and that the Sadducees and the people of Judea would have followed the second one. So you would have had two days that the lambs would have been killed. There is other supporting evidence, and that's why I gave you uh, W.L. Lane's name there, so you can go back and look at the evidence for yourself and see whether or not it is something that you can really believe. Other people say Jesus didn't really keep the Passover meal. That's what I made reference to there. I don't know how they could think it wasn't the Passover meal. Yes, the seven-day feast of unleavened bread is sometimes referred to as the Passover. The whole seven days are sometimes referred to it, but he's talking about a very specific Passover meal in this text. And I think that that, is, that that is what happened. There were a lot of people taking communion. But it wasn't too, I mean, taking, uh, uh, celebrating Passover. It wasn't 250,000, but it was a lot of people that were traveling to the area. And you can see the logistics. Um, Josephus also talked about the blood flowing through the Kidron Valley up to the horse's mane. And again, most scholars believe he's talking in hyperbolic language there that blood did flow through the Kidron Valley that came from the sacrifices, just not up to the horse's mane. Now let's come back and look at this other part here. It says, 
that verse 7, they came, uh, then came the day of unleavened bread. This is the feast, the seven days of unleavened bread where you were not to eat any leaven. Leaven was a sign of a type of impurity or a type of sin. And so seven days after the Passover, the first day after the Passover being one of them, you would not eat any unleavened bread. And it was a symbol of you deliberately getting sin out of your life. And it says when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying to them, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. And they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold. Now this behold tells you that something, Jesus is telling them, something kind of wild is going to happen. There are those who believe that Jesus is just, that he's already made arrangements and that they're going to go run into a guy carrying water and, the, and, and they're going to see him. He's going to go, oh yeah, I talked to Jesus. And so this is where you're going to have your, your celebration. But this is very much like when Jesus was preparing to have his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. You remember he said, go and you'll find a donkey there if you untie it. And the master says, why are you untying it? You say, my, my master has need of it. And he'll say, you can take it. So I think Jesus is showing that he is in control of all of the things that are happening. That nothing is happening to him. Jesus said, no one takes the son of man's life, but I lay my life down. So Jesus is laying his life down. And I think he's showing the control. And I think the fact that Jesus says, behold, when you enter the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Now, it was uncommon. Women were the ones who went out and gathered the water in their day, so it would be uncommon that a man would be carrying the pitcher of water. But I don't think it's uncommon enough for the behold. Behold, you're going to go out in the city. There's going to be a man carrying water. And they walk out and, whoa, there's a man carrying water. That never happens. I don't know if it's that strong. It says, follow him into the house in which he enters, which is like he walks in the house, you follow him right in. Then you shall say to his master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the great room where I might eat Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room there, make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them and they prepared the Passover. Now, these two events, telling them to go and find certain things and prepare for the triumphant entry and for the Passover could be connected. On the 10th of Nisan, the, you were to pick out your Passover lamb. So you would go and purchase it. You would pick it out from your own lambs and it had to be perfect. It had to have no flaws. And then between the 10th of Nisan and the 14th of Nisan, when the animals were sacrificed, there was an inspection of those animals. So some believe that when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that that was the choosing of the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, and that between the Sunday he went in until the Thursday that he had Passover with his disciples, they were inspecting him. Do you remember what we found in between? They questioned him. They came and they questioned him. The scribes did it. The Pharisees did it. The chief priests did it. They came and inspected him. And then on this day, the day of uh, Passover, the following day, that he would then become our Passover lamb. So now what I would like to do now is just to consider what the Bible says about the Passover and the Passover lamb and see how that connects to specifically communion because it's at this event. And um, the first thing that I want to look at is 
that it was a memorial meal. This is Passover. They were remembering that they were slaves in Egypt and they were set free. That God went through 10 plagues. This was the last of the plagues and God sent a death angel through the land and told everybody, and I'll share with you in a moment why I think it was everybody, but told everybody, both Jews and Egyptians, to take a lamb, to kill it, to put the blood on your door. Some believe that it was in the shape of a cross, that you would touch the top of the door and the two sides of the door, and the blood would run down and make the shape of the cross. Others believe that you put it around the door. I don't know about the whole shape of the cross thing, maybe, but... You know, some people look for things everywhere, right? And that, that, then you would go in your house, you and your family. And while you were in the house with that doorway covered by the blood of the lamb, then the death angel would pass over and your firstborn son would not die. If you didn't do it, your firstborn son would die. And the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that by faith, the children of Israel kept the Passover. This helps us to understand more about faith. They believed God. They picked out a lamb on the 10th of Nisan. They sacrificed it on the 14th of Nisan. They smeared the blood on the door and the death angel passed over and their firstborn son didn't die. It was by faith. So it was a memorial meal. Exodus 12, 14 says, so this day shall be to you a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. So they were to keep Passover year after year after year. So it's a memorial meal that Jesus gives us another memorial meal. The Lord's table that is different than the Passover meal, but we are to keep it as a memorial meal. Now he says, as often as you do this, some churches do it every week. Some churches do it every, every Sunday. We do it on the first Wednesday of the month. I don't think there's a right or wrong time to take it. I think there's, there's positives and negatives on doing it once a month and doing it every week. If it's something that you do every week, you could lose the importance, you could lose the feeling of the importance of it. If it's something that you're doing it once a month, maybe you're not thinking about the Lord's death and your forgiveness enough. So maybe it should be done more often. It's something you need to search out and see. Each church has to search out and see how they want to do it. The second thing that I note about Passover is that it was a deliverance from slavery. They were in Egypt. They were under the heavy taskmasters who were there and they were delivered from slavery. And by the way, archaeology has discovered that Israel was in Egypt, mentioned in Egypt, Yahweh or the people of Yahweh is mentioned in Egypt 1,500 years before Christ. The nomads were there, just as, just as it says. So John 8, 32, Jesus says this to us. And you shall know the truth. Or he says it to the scribes and Pharisees. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. They answered, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, then you are free indeed. 
So just as the Passover meal was eaten and then they were freed from their slavery, when we receive Christ into our lives, we have his blood cleanses us from our sin and we are free from the slavery of sin and we are to take communion as a reminder that his blood has cleansed us from our sins and we are no longer slaves to sin. Passover was also supposed to stop a judgment. The people of Egypt were under a judgment by God. God not only judged his own people, God did that, but God also judged other nations. Think Nineveh, think Sodom and Gomorrah. There are other, other Old Testament, Ty, the city of Tyre, that God pronounced judgment over. And he says he's judging Egypt for their idolatry. Now the children of Israel also got involved in idolatry, even while they were in Egypt. This is why I believe the first nine plagues didn't affect them. God was speaking against their gods when they had the frogs and the flies and the maggots and the fire and brimstone, when, when they had all of those things. And Israel did not face any of it. But during the last plague, the, the death of the firstborn, Israel had to make sure that they did what they were supposed to do in order to not have it happen. And so in Exodus 12, 12, it says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So by putting the blood on their homes, they missed the judgment. They bypassed the judgment of God. By Jesus' blood being applied to our lives, we are not under the wrath of God. I think all of us would admit that we've done things that we should be judged for. But because of the blood of the Lamb, we have been forgiven. We have been given a fresh start. Our sins are taken away. And we are not under the judgment of God. This helps. This is something we should think about when we take communion. That it's not just the forgiveness of my sins, but I am no longer under the wrath of God. Romans 5, 8, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. That we will miss the wrath that is to come. When we partake of communion, it is a remembrance that God is not judging us. You and I will have a Bema seat judgment. Our works will be judged as to whether or not we had the right motives, but we ourselves will not be judged because Jesus took our sins on the cross, shed his blood for our sins. The Bible also tells us that Jesus as the Passover lamb takes away the sins of the world. The Passover lambs that were sacrificed in Egypt protected the Hebrews who were in Egypt, who by faith did it. If they didn't do it, it didn't protect them. But when John the Baptist saw Jesus in John 1 it says the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So now we have one man who was innocent, who is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is the sufficiency of the death of Christ. That's a theological term. The sufficiency of the blood or the atoning work of Christ. Meaning there's not a person alive who has done so much that he can't be forgiven of his sins if he comes to Christ. 
which is pretty amazing when you think about it, because there have been some pretty wicked people that have been alive on planet Earth. It is also sufficient for everyone to be saved. And the Bible makes it clear, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's not, there's not one person in this room who doesn't know Christ that can't ask him to forgive them and receive him tonight, that cannot have your sins forgiven and cannot enter into a relationship with the living God and be given eternal life. And think about this. This is John the Baptist saying this in the wilderness of Judea about Jesus who, it's his cousin, so he's got to know him, but doesn't, hasn't seen his ministry yet and that he's going to take away the sins of the world and this has come to pass that anyone who can call on him can have their sins removed. Now also, the next thing that I notice is that the bread was to be unleavened bread. The bread at this memorial meal was to be unleavened. The bread that they use today, I don't know if they can really go back and see the bread that they were using 2,000 years ago, but the bread that they use today in Passover is like a cracker because it doesn't have leaven, right? Leaven makes bread rise, so it's like a cracker. It is kind of toasted, so it's, it's got some you know, brown dark marks on it. It's pierced, and it's pierced in rows, which would make it striped. So it's striped and it's pierced, and it's interesting that Jesus would take this bread, if that's the bread they had, it was at least unleavened bread, and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. In the Passover meals that are taken today, the bread that they take is pierced and striped, even as Jesus was. Now, Exodus 12, 15 says, seven days you will eat unleavened bread. And on the first day, you shall remove leaven from the house. So you were to go and clean the house up. And whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. That's pretty severe. This speaks to us about sweeping out our houses. We got leaven, things that cause leaven in our lives, things that cause sin in our lives, getting rid of them so that we can go through our lives without having leaven. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, it says, your, glo you, uh, you glorify, your glorifying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Jesus promised you you could be a new lump. Since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Notice that Paul here in Corinthians tells the church in Corinth, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. He's talking about unleavened bread when he's talking about the Passover. This is the reflection of the fact that the leaven was to be removed. Now, we're told in Corinthians, when we take communion, to examine ourselves that we would not take communion in an unworthy manner. This would be examining to see if there's any leaven in our lives, getting the leaven out by repentance and making decisions in our lives that would help us to live our lives so that we don't fall into sin. There are certain things you can repent. You can say, God, I'm sorry. But if you don't make changes, then you won't be able to get it out of your life. You may want it out of your life, but you've got to be able to make those changes. So examining ourselves is getting rid of this leaven. The Passover lamb was also to be perfect. It was to have no blemishes at all. 
1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Comparing Jesus to a lamb without blemish and spot would be comparing him to the Passover lamb. But he's talking about the practice that they had that you could give money to the treasury to redeem yourself from your sins. And so he says, you are not redeemed with money, with silver and gold, these things that perish, but by the precious blood of the lamb who was without spot or wrinkle. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. Jesus is our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was perfect without sin. One of the arguments that Orthodox Jews will say about Jesus not being able to be the Passover lamb was that on the night that he was arrested, he was beaten and then he was scourged by the Romans and then he was sacrificed so he had blemishes and could not be the Passover lamb. Here we're told that the blemishes are without sin. It speaks of his perfection. So the Passover lamb without blemishes spoke of the perfection of Christ. Just a few more. You were to apply the blood to the door with hyssop. Hyssop was a common plant that grew, had small kind of purplish flowers that were on it. Exodus 12, 22 says, and you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip, the, uh, dip in the blood that is in the basin. This is the blood you've drained out of the lamb and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood of the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. Now, hyssop was also the plant that was used by the priest. When you would go in and make a sacrifice, they would dip the hyssop into the blood and sprinkle it on the people with hyssop. In Psalms 51.7, David is repenting from two sins that don't have any sacrifices that can be made for them. These are sins that according to the law, you were to be killed for. That was adultery and murder. David committed murder by killing Bathsheba's husband Uriah, who he had had an affair with. So think of the shame and the guilt that David felt when Nathan told David, you will not die. God was not going to kill him for his sin. And now David had to make things right with God. And so Psalms 51 is David writing out how he made things right with God. He said, you do not desire sacrifice or I would give it. That gives us some clarity. There was not a sacrifice for adultery or for murder. You don't desire sacrifice or I would give it. If you, if you had a sacrifice I could go and give in order to be forgiven for this, I would. But then he says the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. And that tells us that David did have that broken and contrite heart. So then David says in, verse, in Psalms 51, 7, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David had a conviction that even the sins that he had committed, by the way, while he was older, these happened to him probably in his mid-50s, 
He had served God faithfully as he was younger, but as he got older, he fell into this sin. But he believed that if he would be cleansed with hyssop, and this was a sign again of the, it being dipped into the blood of an animal. It wasn't the hyssop that could make him clean. It was the sprinkling of the blood that was sacrificed that could make it clean. There was no sacrifice for it, and yet he believed by faith that God could cleanse him with blood. The blood that David was forgiven by was the blood of the lamb. So it doesn't surprise us that hyssop makes an appearance at the crucifixion of Jesus. In John 19:29, now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. Now, here, the sour wine, I don't know that it's representing blood, but the fact that at the cross, where the blood of Christ is being shed, there is hyssop, which is the plant that they were to use to shake the blood on the people, speaks of something. Now, I also looked up hyssop, and it was common in Israel. So everywhere you would go, you would find a plant that was common that would remind you of the blood, blood of the sacrifices that you had been sprinkled by. It would be kind of neat if there, was a, if there was a plant that we could, as we're walking out in the desert, look at and be reminded of the work that was done for us. That's quite a phone ring. Uh, you were to eat uh, the Passover lamb. You were to eat it all. You were to eat all of the Passover lamb. Exodus 20.10 says, you shall, not let, um, you shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning shall be burnt with fire. So you were to entirely devour the lamb. And if there was anything left, then you were to burn it up. So there was absolutely nothing left of it. I believe that this speaks to us about living wholeheartedly for Christ. That we are to be all in. That we aren't to eat part of the lamb and leave the rest of it. But we're to take it all. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we are to live for him with everything. We could go to many verses for this. Luke 9, 23 and 24 says, Then he said to them all, If you desire to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So as believers, we're not to play partial games, partially in the world. The, the Christian who is partially in the world and partially following God is committing spiritual adultery with God, the Bible says. J. Vernon McGee used to say, the person that has one foot in the world and one foot in the church is like a person that has one foot on the bus and one foot on the curb and when the bus takes off, it's tenable for a while. But sooner or later, you got to make a decision. It's the curb or the bus. It's one or the other. It may be tenable for a while for you to live as a Christian living worldly. But after a while, you got to make a decision. Or you'll end up, like he said, my friends in the gutter. You'll end up in the gutter. It's a good analogy. Um, they were to eat the Passover meal with bitter herbs because they were to remember the bitterness of their slavery. Exodus 12, 8. They shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with leavened, unleavened bread, 
and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. And we're told that it was a reminder of their slavery. Here I think this speaks very well to us as we take communion that we don't look back at the world with nostalgia. Sometimes that's hard not to do. Sometimes I hear, hear certain songs and it reminds me of a certain time in my life, certain time when I was away from Christ and I'll hear it and I'll get that nostalgia feeling. But the thing about nostalgia is it doesn't speak about any other aspect of it. We are to remember the bitterness of being without Christ, the bitterness of the world, the bitterness of living on our own. One more, you shall eat it in haste, dressed and ready to go. Because they were going to be delivered that night, because uh, Pharaoh was going to go, go, they were supposed to have everything dressed and ready to go. And so in Exodus, this is Exodus 12, 11, and thus you shall eat it with the belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Then there's 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five talking about communion that says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we are to remember when we take communion that Jesus is returning. I think this is saying a couple of things that as, as long as the church age lasts, if that lasts another 500 years, Christians are going to gather together around the table of the Lord. And that's a good thing because that means genuine churches will always be centered around the cross. God gave us communion so we would be centered around the work that he did for us, that our Passover lamb did for us. And genuine churches 500 years from now, 1,000 years from now, if the Lord tarries, will be taking communion around the cross and it will help to keep the church centered. Does that mean that there aren't churches that lose it and go off in other directions? No, there certainly are. There's certainly churches that don't have, see these things as important or that take communion for other reasons. They don't keep centered around it. But also it reminds us that Jesus will come back one day. That, that one day the sky will part. And Jesus will come through in all of his glory. And I've shared before that I think that we are in a birth pain right now. And it sure seems like we can't go on without Jesus returning pretty soon. The Bible says in the last days, lawlessness will increase. In the last days, the love of many will grow cold. In the last days, false teachers will abound. And we could go on. So many things are true about the days that we live in. Now, what do we do if we think we're living in the last days? If, you're, if somebody gives you a book that Jesus is going to come back in the next year, what are you supposed to do? Occupy until he comes. Take care of your family. Do what you would normally do to make sure that you're okay. The Bible says if someone doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an infidel. In 1844, there was the great disappointment William Miller had declared that Jesus was going to come back before 1844. So the closer they got to 1844, people stopped working their land. They sold their farms. They sold the things that they had, gave it to people who were spreading the gospel. And then Jesus didn't come back in 1844 and they didn't have anything for their families. And that's why this, um, this hyper-sensationalized messages are dangerous because sometimes people think, well, I, I, we're going to go. I don't need to worry about, you know, I don't need to worry about retirement. No, you need to worry about taking care of your family. 
need to worry about taking care of your wife in retirement because the man that doesn't take care of his family is worse than an infidel. So we occupy until he comes. Do I have my eyes on the skies? Yes. Do I watch the news and think Jesus can't, he's got to come back this year? Yes. Do I think it's possible it could be another 50, 100? Whatever, yeah. He'll come back in the day he decides to come back. Not when we think he should come back. I like to think, what did people think during World War II when Hitler was around, attacking the Jews? And you read that in, in Revelation that the Antichrist attacks the Jews. How many people do you think thought Hitler was the Antichrist? By the way, I think he was a, an, an Antichrist. But I, if I were alive in those days, I'd have been like, get ready, it's happening. Right? Think about 1948, just a few years later after World War II when Israel became a nation. I wasn't born yet. But if I were and old enough to get it, I'd be like, Israel's a nation again. Or 1967, which I was seven years old in 67, when Jerusalem came under Israeli control again. And that's prophesied. All of this, put on, put, pick your staff up, be ready to go. Are you ready? That's the idea. When we take communion, which we're supposed to take, take often, it is like Passover, and we are to eat it with our belt on and our staff, ready to go. But if Jesus doesn't come back, we occupy. We occupy until he comes, because no one knows. Why do you think Jesus said, no one knows the day I'm coming back, not even the Son and not even the angels? So that there could be someone who could tell you that they knew the two days that Jesus was going to come? And we are, and I keep saying this, but it's so true, we're about to hit a whole lot of date setters. A whole lot of people are going to be setting dates. So just ignore them, persevere, look to the skies. Every time you see a neat set of clouds, think of the return of Jesus, because one day it's going to happen, and he's going to return because he said that he did, and what a day it will be. And I vote for my lifetime, by the way. I vote for that. I want to be one of those who's changed in a moment in twinkling of an eye. But rarely do we think of communion as proclaiming the death of Christ until he comes. We are, when we take communion, we are proclaiming his death. When they took Passover, they were proclaiming the death of the Passover lamb, lambs that delivered them from slavery as a memorial, and they were killing lambs as a memorial to it, and we think of the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world, our Passover lamb, according to 1 Corinthians. So this, these things are things that just help us as we approach communion. Next week, we'll tie them in a little bit better as we look at the things about communion that we can solidly see from the scriptures. But I do think that this foundation, this memorial meal that communion launches off of is very important. The more we know about it, the more we can understand communion. All right, stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be able to see Jesus preparing his disciples for this Passover meal. And that this is a memorial meal that he would give us the new covenant and he would give us a memorial. And Lord, we pray like them that we would be looking in our lives to get rid of the leaven. We pray we would sweep out our homes to get rid of the leaven. That we would make things right with you. And thank you so much for the blood of the lamb that is sufficient for every sin ever committed and for every person that Christ died once for all. And Lord, I pray for those that are here tonight that don't know you, that you would speak to their heart about committing their lives to you. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus, we pray.
Amen.